All right, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Leviticus. <coughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book from the front. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, our family was big into reptiles, and uh, we were people who had pet snakes, Creepy, but that's what we did. And uh, one of the things that I had to do when we had a pet snake in hibernation, uh, I learned when I was about eight years old, was uh, we had to figure out some way to feed it. Apparently, snakes in captivity need to continue to be fed while they're hibernating. So the guy at the pet store tells us, he goes, it's a little bit difficult because you can't feed them a frozen mouse because you know, they sense the heat. And if they don't sense any heat at all, then they're not going to go for the frozen mouse. He says, but you can't give him a live mouse because he's hibernating and he's just not going to be able to, you know, go on the hunt like he should. So simple enough, you just got to kill a, a mouse and give him the freshly killed mouse. This guy's not exactly Dr. Doolittle, right? And so my mom obviously asked the next question, the trying to figure out what the implied task is, how do we kill the mouse? And he goes, oh, no problem. You just take him by the tail and you crack his head on the side of the of the, the glass tank that your snake's in, and that'll do it. And so my mom's like, okay, yeah, that'll do it. You're going to do it, Sean. This is your snake. You're going to kill this sweet little baby mouse. I'm like, no problem, Mom. I got it. Tom comes to feed the snake. I get the mouse out. He's very cute, very cuddly, very adorable. I grab him by his very cute, cuddly little tail, and I muster up all the, the gumption that I can as an eight-year-old little boy with my fat little pudgy fingers, and I I've got him here, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I've got to you know, twirl him to get him going, but I, I crack him as hard as I can on the side of the cage, and he goes crazy. Blood goes everywhere. He is kicking and screaming, you know, however a mouse might do that. And so I don't know what to do, so I freak out, and I just continue to whack this little guy's head over and over again against the side of the snake aquarium until there is blood everywhere. And then I drop it in the cage, I go wash my hands and face, and I go, that was terrible. <laughs> the book of Leviticus, <laughs> the book of Leviticus would not be easy for us to read no matter what, but our modern squeamishness is doing us no favors. We are a people who are afraid of blood and death and excrement and skin and hair and bones, right? Modern squeamishness means that we love steak, but we don't want to watch a cow get a bolt shot into its head so that we can enjoy that precious ribeye, right? Our modern squeamishness means that we love bacon, but we don't want to think about having to drain a pig's blood, carve up its flesh and dispose of its unclean bits. And on top of that, because we are fortunate enough to live on the other side of the cross, we never have to think about bloody altars, dead animals, or priests covered from head to toe in animal guts when we think about having a relationship with God. And so as we come to the beginning of the book of Leviticus, we scrunch our noses up at what we read about in these first seven chapters 
stuff that most human beings before the industrial, revolutionary, uh, industrial revolution would have been perfectly comfortable with, things like death and blood and fecal matter. In our modern age, we want our religion like we want everything else in our lives. Clean, sleek, sanitary. We don't want any remnant of that arcane man and his arcane religion with his arcane rituals. We want it all to be new and tidy. This is perfectly illustrated. Some of you may remember the Crystal Cathedral and the Hour of Power that used to come on TBN once a week. Uh, This was a a big, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like, a big crystal cathedral in Anaheim, California, outside of Disneyland. Their kind of main draw was going to be, if you're here while you're on vacation with your family and you want to go to church, come with us at the Crystal Cathedral. Well, one of the main rules for guest preachers at the Crystal Cathedral was no talking about blood. No talking about a bloody cross. People don't want to hear about blood in their religion. That's not what people are here for. They're here to be made to feel good. But friends, we have to deal with the fact that this book is a book of blood. Christianity is a Christianity, excuse me, is a religion of blood. The songs that we sang this morning are songs that have much to do with blood. And as antiseptic as we want to think that our lives are, they're not. We are a mess whether we realize it or not. We may not have animal blood under our fingernails, but I think it's good for us to remember a time when having a relationship with God meant that we would. And I think that that's what these first seven chapters of Leviticus are going to do for us this morning. Uh, These first seven chapters in the book, they read something like a service manual on offering sacrifices to the Lord. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of technical jargon, a lot of detail. It's basically broken up into two sections. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, on into chapter 6, verse 8. This is the instructions uh, for the Israelites. What are the Israelites, what are the people of God supposed to do in these sacrificial offerings? And then from chapter 6, verse 8, on into the end of uh, chapter 7, we have the priests and their responsibility, what they are supposed to do in these sacrifices. Now, there is a lot to see in these seven chapters. There are a lot of stones to uncover. We're not going to uncover them all, Uh, partly just because we don't have time, partly because a lot of it's repetitive, partly because I don't know the answers to every question we may have about some of the stuff that's going on in these verses. But what I want us to do is treat Leviticus like we treated the book of Hebrews, right? We just got through walking through Hebrews, and we looked at it in in basically five big chunks so that we could understand how all the big pieces fit together. We understood the forest so that later we could come back and look at the trees and understand them properly. That's the same thing we're going to do with the book of Leviticus. So uh, chapter one is all about burnt offerings. It's the main offering Uh, in in the five offerings that are discussed in these first seven chapters. And uh, all the other ones are basically connected to this first one in some way. We're not going to read all seven chapters this morning, although I know you want it. I can see it in your eyes. Uh, But we will read chapter one, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in. Chapter one, verse one. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offerings and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But his entrails and his legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for the ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but that part where he talks about tearing the wings off, that really got me. That was a really good one. Okay, so... There are five sacrifices that are given, five main sacrifices. There are actually a couple more, but there are five main sacrifices that are given in these first seven chapters. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a brief breakdown of these five sacrifices, and then we're going to come back and go through the points of the sermon. So the first sacrifice is what we just read about. This is the burnt offering. It was the most common and the most important sacrifice uh, in these days. It was offered on a couple of different occasions. It was offered on Sabbath days at the beginning of each month. It was offered during festivals. It was offered to address ritual uncleanliness. But the primary time in which it was offered was every morning and every evening. If you want, you can go and read about this prescription in Numbers chapter 28. But the main thing about this is that it was offered every day to make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay? Every day, twice a day, to make atonement for the sins of the people. We're going to talk about atonement later. I just want to tell you that that's what it's here for. Um, Later on in the book of Leviticus, we're going to talk about uh, the atonement offering that was offered once a year. What you just need to know is that both of these offerings existed in the life of Israel, and they weren't in competition. Uh, You can think about it like worship. We're called by God to worship Him all day, every day in our lives. It's meant to be a, a universal aspect of what we do. But as Christians, we're also called together once a week on Sunday into a fullness of worship with him together. It's the same thing with the offerings. There was daily offerings, but there was also a once a year main gathering offering. Now, the thing that's unique about the burnt offering is that it was meant to be entirely consumed by the flames. So look at uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We see here it says, And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, 
But his entrails and his legs he shall wash with water, and the, priest, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. Other offerings only required uh, the fat or this part or that part of the animal. This required the entire animal to be burnt up and consumed. There's also uh, three different kinds of animals that you can offer here. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, uh, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Okay, the herd would have been cattle. The flock would have been sheep. That's a little bit of a step down. And then you can look in verse 14, and there you see that there's another offering that's available. Uh, you can bring birds. Uh, these were for different people with different levels of, of, uh, of income, right? Uh, people who were richer, people who were poor. Those who could bring the bulls had more wealth. Those who bring the pigeons were uh, struggling to get by. Okay, then after that, we have the grain offering. The grain offering is kind of like the level up offering. It's kind of like the booster offering. This is the offering that you would bring when you would want to give uh, an offering above and beyond your burnt offering or your peace offering, okay? Uh, One way to think about it is kind of like how in a lot of churches they talk about tithes and offerings. We don't use that language around here because I don't think it's biblical in the New Testament to talk about Christians tithing, but you understand the concept, right? The concept is we give to the Lord what we're required to through obedience, and then we go above and beyond our giving in our offerings, our tithes and our offerings. That's kind of how this works. you got your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, you, what you're required to give, and then what you want above and beyond that. These could be given in three forms. You have your uncooked in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, that's, you would just bring the, the flour and the oil and some frankincense, and then the, the, the priests would cook it themselves. You have the cook. The cooked, that would be like, hey, I know you're a priest, you're busy, you got a lot going on, don't worry about it, I'll cook this flour up and I'll bring you the bread pre-made, okay? I'm sure the priests appreciated that. And then you have the really uncooked in chapter 2, verse 14. You say, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. This would be Listen, I haven't had time to make the flour yet, even of the stuff that I've harvested, so I'm just going to bring you some actual grain, okay? So you have the cooked, the uncooked, and then the really uncooked. Uh, The grain offering, only some of it was burned, not all of it. Most of it was given to the priest to eat. Then you have the peace offering. That's the third offering. The peace offering, you can read about all of that in chapter 3. This is the one that it seems like almost nobody really knows a lot about. But it, it seems like it's the offering that you would, you would offer up after a burnt offering to celebrate the fact that God had received your offering, right? That, that, that the atonement had taken place, and now it's just a big party, a big celebration. Uh, commentators basically talk about this offering like it would be like, hey, I was in sin. I've been reconciled back to God through this offering. Now let's have a barbecue, okay? Good times. Um, then you have the sin offerings, So this is in chapter 4, and when you look at chapter 4, verse 1, you see the word unintentional there. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands, and then if you look in verse 13 and 22 and 27, you see again and again this language of unintentional sins. That's what the, the sin offering was primarily for, sins that you did not intend to commit, but that were nevertheless brought to your attention. These were individual, but they could also be the whole people of Israel. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. It says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and then you would offer up this sacrifice. 
And then finally, you have the guilt offering. This is otherwise known as the reparations offering. You can see that in chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his brother in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor, and then he just goes on and on and on through verse 6 to describe all different kinds of ways that you have probably sinned against your neighbor and done him an injustice. That's what this offering was for. So these are the five main offerings. You guys with me? You tracking? Everybody's waking up now. We're coming back. We're coming back. Okay. So you remember from our time in Hebrews, and especially from what our sister Megan just read from us for us in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, these sacrifices no longer exist. They're no longer necessary. The reason why? Well, Christ has come and he's fulfilled the law. He is the true tabernacle. He is the final sacrifice, the spotless lamb. He is our great high priest. And so the question then is, well, if, well, Sean, if that's true, if Christ has come and these things no longer exist, why are we studying them? Why are we spending an hour together this morning looking at the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus? Well, in order to understand that, you have to remember what the point of Leviticus is. The story of Leviticus is all about how a holy God is calling sinners back into his presence through prescribed worship, right? God is telling them how they might approach him in their sin and in his holiness. Now, the, the, the means by which God has prescribed for them to come into his presence, according to the sacrificial system, that has changed. But the principles, the reality that we are sinners and that God is holy and that he is still calling us back into his presence through his prescribed means is still very much alive and well today. And so we're going to spend the next three hours studying eight themes, eight themes drawn out from these five offerings for us today. You guys with me? Can we do it? All right. Point number one, atonement. Mm. Atonement. Going back to chapter one, verse four. It says, He shall lay his hand, that's the Israelite, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This phrase, to make atonement for him, is used 13 times in these seven chapters. 13 times. Atonement is an English translation of the Hebrew word kippur. Uh, and this, this English translation, it, it means at one minute. It's, it's meant to communicate the idea of atonement, which is that God is holy, man is sinful, and because of that, there's a problem. There's, there's an interference. They can't coexist, okay? Sin has created a barrier. And so this atonement is meant to do away with that barrier. It's meant to appease God's wrath because of sin. Okay, now... The sacrificial system, where we put our hand on a goat's head and identify with that goat and then offer it up and kill it and, and, and burn it on, a, on an altar, that no longer exists today. But the need for human beings to be atoned for is universal. It's everlasting. As long as man is alive and breathing and sinning and rebelling against a holy and righteous God, there has to be some way, if we are to come back into God's presence, for our sin to be dealt with. And here in Leviticus, we see a gracious provision. We, saw, we see God very kindly and graciously 
giving man a way that he might come back into his presence. Now, before moving on from this first point, we're going to talk a lot more about atonement later on in chapter 16, so I'm not going to hit it too heavy this morning. Uh, But before we move on, I want to talk about one of the major misconceptions of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Um, It's very commonly thought, especially in American churches that come from like a dispensational background, that in the Old Testament, you had to do things in order to get God's grace. But in the New Testament, everything is done for you by Jesus and you just need to receive it. And so according to this view, uh, this is how you are okay with God. You have to do things. You have to kill an animal, offer up his sacrifice, and then everything's going to be okay with you and God. Uh, but that's not actually what's happening here. That's not right at all. You have to remember where we are in the larger story of the Bible. And in the larger story of the Bible, we see that God has already called Israel into relationship with himself. He's already given Israel grace. He's already said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to fix this relationship. And the sacrificial system is just more of God's grace. It's just another way that God has given is. It's the main way that God has given Israel for them to be able to fully partake in the grace that he has already made available. Now, the second way that people kind of misunderstand this stuff is they think that Uh, just because the sacrifices are no longer having to be offered in the temple anymore, that the sacrificial language of the New Testament just kind of dies away. Uh, Or excuse me, of the Old Testament just dies away in the New Testament. But that's actually not true either. What you see in the New Testament is that there's still all this language of of offering sacrifices. Uh, Listen to Romans 12.1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what you see is this this physical sacrifice has now become a spiritual sacrifice in our lives, so much so that Paul tells his readers in 1 Corinthians that he dies daily as a spiritual act of worship. That die daily is not coming from Jesus talking about taking up his cross. It's Paul pulling from this imagery in the book of Leviticus. Friends, we must remember that the wages of sin is always death. And that is true for us even today as Christians. But praise be to God that the death that we die today is only metaphorical in nature and is pointing forward to the one who actually died in our place, Jesus, the righteous Lamb of God. Okay, Uh, number two. That's probably the longest point. No, maybe there's one more. But we're going to get going. Don't worry. Number two, prescribed worship. Let me list off to you some of the uh, exacting demands that God has for these sacrifices. The flour has to be fine. Uh, The grain of the first fruits has to be roasted. There has to be frankincense put in the flour with oil. It cannot be leavened. It cannot have honey in it. The animals have to be unblemished. Everything has to be removed from the animal that is unclean. It has to be butchered a certain way. It has to be washed a certain way. It has to be handled a certain way. It has to be placed on the altar a certain way. The blood has to be disposed of in a certain way on the north side of the the tabernacle. Okay, It has to be burned for a certain amount of time. Some of the offerings could only be male. Some of the offerings could only be female. And we could just keep going and going and going. Every offering had four elements. Presentation 
inspection, identification, and atonement. Presentation, inspection, identification, and atonement. But those last two, identification and atonement, you couldn't do those unless you passed muster for the first two. Unless once you presented the animal for inspection, it passed that inspection. Now, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to beat this drum super heavy this week. I just want to remind us again that God is the one who decides how we approach him in worship. It is way too common for us as sinners to think that as long as we approach God with fond feelings in our hearts, that our worship will absolutely be received by him. But that is not what we see to be the case here in the book of Leviticus, especially in these first seven chapters. What we see is that God has a very clear way in which he wants us to approach him and that any other way will be unacceptable. And we will talk about that more powerfully when the book of Leviticus actually gives us in the priesthood uh, the best illustration of what happens when we think we're above worshiping God according to his regulations. Number three, worthy sacrifices. Worthy sacrifices. Uh, It was a costly thing in the ancient world to offer up sacrifices to God. Even if you were the one offering up a pigeon, it, it was not easy to come by. And God was clear. You couldn't offer him any blemished animals, right? Your sacrifices had to be worthy of the one to whom you were sacrificing. So that goat with the crushed testicles that couldn't be used to reproduce, the throwaway goat that you were probably, he's old and he's not going to do much for me anymore. I'll go and take that one before the Lord. No, the lamb with the skin disease, the bull with one eye, none of these would be acceptable as sacrifices to the Lord. Later on in the story of the New Testament, you remember this from our time in Malachi, offering up these uh, damaged goods to God became normal. It became just standard practice for the people of God. And so God says this to the people, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And then he says this, and this is, uh, you, you got to love this. He says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, asks the Lord Almighty? <clears throat> the answer is no. But because we don't see God here before us, fully, you know, crowned in the regal glory of his splendor, it's also easy for us to offer him up less than our best. Now, when I talk about offering God less than our best, uh, depending on where you come from and your background, you might be hearing me say that like, we need to dress up in suits and ties on a Sunday morning in church. I'm not saying that. Although do, I do think there needs to be some sort of reverence as we come together as a people before God. You know? But that's not what I think he's addressing here. I think he's just talking about worthy worship in general. In this particular context, it has to do with sacrifices. But if you remember now, the New Testament says that all of our lives are spiritual sacrifices to God. So then the question for our application this morning is, in what way might you in your life be offering up worthless sacrifices to God? In what way might you be offering up a defected lamb or bull or goat or a pigeon with one wing? Could it be that you put 20% of your check into your 401k and only give whatever you have left over to the gospel ministry in the church? Is that, a, is that a worthy way of worshiping God? 
with your finances? Could it be that you give God a five-minute devotional once a week if you can make time between Facebook and Instagram? Could it be treating your spouse in a way that doesn't honor them, in the way that, that you're called to honor them? Could it be the way that you comport yourself when you're gathered with the saints on a Sunday morning? You know, what vibe are you putting off? I'm here, aren't I? You know, let's do this thing. I'm here, I showed up. Is that a worthy sacrifice? What about saying or doing things as a form of worship just to be seen by others, like the Pharisees who blew their trumpets in the street? When I was a kid, uh, I got a brand new VCR for Christmas. I'm telling two traumatic childhood stories from my childhood this morning, if you're keeping count. Uh, I got a VCR for Christmas, and I was so excited because our old VCR in the living room, it barely worked, and we used to always have to pull the tape out, and we'd try to clean the tape and, you know, do all our tricks and put it back in to get, and it's like the Nintendo cartridge, you remember you would blow on them, but it never worked. So our VCR in our living room was atrocious, so I got a brand new VCR for Christmas that was supposed to go in my room so I could watch Bloodsport and Ace Ventura over and over and over again, okay? Now, when I got that, my mom took the good new VCR and put it in the living room, and she gave me the old messed up VCR to put in my room. Now, listen, the injustice of that aside, I think that that's so typifies how we approach what we give to God, you know? We'll get the new good thing, whatever that is in our life, whether that's our emotions or our energy or whatever it is, and we'll give that to the world. We'll give the best of what we have to the world, and then we'll give whatever we have left over to Christ and to his church. And if you're thinking, Sean, what are you trying to do, man? Are you trying to load me up with condemnation this morning? No. But if that's you, and it probably is because it's me, then we should all feel a certain sense of guilt about that because God is worthy of more than that. He is worthy of more than maybe I'll make it to church this morning or maybe I'll love my neighbor this morning or maybe I'll make time in my time, maybe I'll figure out some way to use my time, talent, and treasures for the glory of his name. Now, I do want to encourage you this morning You know, if you are squeezing in your devotionals at all, praise God. If you're not treating your spouse the way you're supposed to, but you're staying committed in marriage, I praise God that you're hanging fast. If you're not exactly excited to be here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, but you show up anyways because you understand that the most important thing is that you are obedient to God, I praise you for that and I encourage you. But I also want, I want more than that for you, you know? God wants more than that for you. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay that your walk with the Lord is not always what it should be, what God clearly wants for it to be. But it's not okay to stay there. I don't want you to walk away from this sermon this morning feeling more crushed than when you walked in. I want you to know that you are loved. You are accepted if you belong to Jesus. But part of belonging to Jesus means that he's going to push you and he's going to call something. He's going to call you to do more than what you're currently doing because he deserves it, because he's worthy. It won't be easy, but it will always be good. And maybe if we submit to that, if we, if we call out to God and we say, God, I understand this area of my life or that area of my life or this area of my life isn't what it's supposed to be. I understand that I'm offering you 
uh, worthless worship in these ways, but I can't seem to fix it. Can you help me? Those are the kinds of prayers that God delights to answer, that he is overflowing with joy that we would bring before him. And I, f- I think if you, if you earnestly seek God in this way and you ask him for help in these areas, you might find yourself saying with Jonah, but I will with shouts of grateful praise offer my sacrifices to you. Point number four, mercy. So I beat the drum pretty heavy. God is stringent in his demands for worship. We can't make up our own way to approach God. He's given us rules and regulations. All that's true. But mercy is also real. Mercy is real. If you remember back in our burnt uh, offering section in chapter one, we talked about there's bulls and then the lambs and then the, the birds. Uh, this was, uh, you know, according to the financial situation of those who were offering up sacrifices. Uh, you can see this stated explicitly. Go with me to chapter five, verse seven. It says, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. So you see, the Lord, he understands. He knows. He knows if you don't have enough money to bring a lamb. So he says, okay, bring a bird. Do what you can. Bring, just do what you got. We see that all the time in the life of this church. I know that everyone in this church can't afford to write the kind of checks that other people can in order to keep the lights on and your pastor paid. But you, you have your own way of serving the church. You bring your birds before the Lord, and he is delighted in that. But what I want us to talk about is, is the way that, that God's demands for worship interact with his mercy. You know, sometimes we talk about kings who rule with an iron fist, but there are also kings who are talked about as ruling with an iron fist in a velvet glove. And I think that when we see God ruling over his people as a king, that's very much what we see. He's very much in control. He does have an iron fist, but that fist is in a velvet glove wherein he gives us so much mercy. You see this this same kind of thing here, this mercy exception for poverty? You see it in a different way in Numbers chapter 9. There in Numbers chapter 9, God calls his people to celebrate the Passover. It's a very big deal. It's a huge celebration. It's so that the people don't forget what God has done for them in the Exodus event where he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And he's not playing any games. He says, when you celebrate it, celebrate it carefully according to all of its statutes and all of its rules. Okay? And what happens if you don't? What's the penalty for not celebrating it properly? You will be cut off from your people. It's a very big deal. But then a problem arises in Numbers chapter 9. There are apparently some people who were away on a trip and couldn't participate. You know how it is traveling in the ancient world. You think you're going to be back by July, but a storm comes, you get caught in it, and you're gone till September. You know, you wanted to be there to celebrate, but you just couldn't. Or maybe you woke up like the, like the brother here, and it says, um, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Maybe you were super excited about celebrating the Passover, but then you woke up and grandma, who was in your house, She passed away in the middle of the night and you had to dispose of grandma's body and so now you're unclean and you can't celebrate the Passover. Well, what are you going to do? Well, this is what God says to them. He says, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month on the 14th day at twilight, 
he shall keep it according to all the statutes. So wait a month and then come back and celebrate it. Again, we see the Lord giving a provision for mercy. He says, okay, I get it. You want to celebrate the Passover according to the way that I've commanded you to celebrate it, but you live in a world that's, that's full of gray. It's affected by sin. You can't control everything, so I'm going to work with you. And you see this mercy pattern all throughout Scripture. Donkeys can be rescued from the well on the Sabbath day, according to Jesus. David's men were not wrong for eating bread in the temple when they were starving. Jesus' disciples were not wrong to pick heads of grain in the field on the Sabbath day because they were hungry. Mm. You even see this outside of the New Testament. In the Didache, it gives commands for how new believers are to be baptized, and it says they're supposed to be baptized in running water, which is like in a stream. But it says if there's not enough running water, as was often the case in the ancient Near East, then you can pour water over their head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, in the life of our own church, we believe that the Lord's Supper is not something that you are supposed to celebrate with your family in your living room or at a church camp or wherever else you may want to celebrate it. We understand the Lord's Supper is to be a family meal as clearly commanded in Scripture. Nevertheless, the elders have come together and talk about it, and we know that there are certain circumstances where members of the church may be bedridden. They may not be able to make it to the Lord's Supper. And so we want to uh, have this kind of spirit about us where we exercise mercy. And so I think we, would, we, we discussed it as elders. We would take the Lord's Supper to, uh, to one of those members who couldn't make it to be with us. Um, just like our sister Catherine when she used to be here. We, that was actually the case that made us start thinking about it more. Talking about all this, uh, how this stuff works like worship and regulations and mercy it makes me think a lot about the Pharisees, right? And the problem with the Pharisees is not that they were too zealous for keeping God's commands in worship. The problem was that they weren't equally zealous in matters of mercy. You see this in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus rebukes them. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now what's interesting there is the perfect balance that Jesus strikes. Because if we were to say what Jesus says right there, we would say, what's your problem, guys? You're, you're careful to tithe the tiniest part of your income, yet you neglect mercy and justice. Mercy and justice is more important than tithing. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says you should have done the latter without neglecting the former. Both matter. If God has commanded you to tithe, then you need to tithe. And if God has commanded you to exercise mercy, then you need to exercise mercy. There's a very fine balance to be maintained here. And it's not always easy to get it right. Going back to Leviticus, we see in these verses that God is certainly merciful to the poor but that does not mean that he places them in an altogether spiritual category that is different from everyone else. It's not like just because they're poor, they don't have to offer up an atoning sacrifice for their sins. They do. Bring a pigeon if you must, but blood must be shed to pay the price for sins. Even for unintentional sins, which we saw earlier. Now, I think the... We'll move on to point number five, active worship. Active worship. 
Go back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Now that he is the Israelite. Okay? He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw it on the, uh, against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put it on the fire, put the fire on the altar, and arrange the wood on the fire. The Israelite had to secure the animal. He had to present the animal. He had to kill the animal. He had to drain the animal's blood. He had to remove the unclean things from the animal. When he had to wash the skin and the legs, the priest didn't do that. He did that. The priests were there to lead and guide Israel in their worship, not do the worship for them. The Israelites were required by God to have an active hand in their worship. Blood had to get under their fingernails. They didn't just hire the professional out to do all the worshiping for them. And the same thing is still true today, brothers and sisters. I know that it's common in American churches to view worship as something that those people up on stage do while we down here just kind of sit and watch. Maybe we'll lip sync along with the music, but they perform and we watch. That is not what worship is. Worship is something that we do. We get our hands dirty as God's people. And I think you can see that in the way we do things even uh, in our church, in the life of our church on a Sunday morning, for example. So you look at our music. There are a number of different churches this morning, which I'm sure are fine churches that are doing good gospel work, where there will be an ensemble on stage with a bunch of instruments and a guy who gets paid more money than I do as your pastor, who his only job is to make sure that they put on a good performance. The lights go well, the lyrics go perfectly, (laughs) the microphones don't mess up. You know, all that stuff goes perfectly so that there can be an experience coming off of the stage so that you can sit and observe it like a rock concert. In contrast... In the life of this church, we have, you know, three guys up on stage playing very minimal instrumentation. And the main reason why is because their only purpose is to lead and guide you while you actively worship God. They're not the professional worshipers on stage and you guys are the lay people. That's not the way it works. If you pay attention on a Sunday morning, this Sunday morning, you probably noticed that the majority of the activity that took place behind this pulpit did not come from me, your pastor. It came from other people. The members of this church come up and read scripture. The members of this church come up and lead us in prayer. The members of this church often lead service. The reason why is because I don't want to be up here so much that it communicates the idea that I'm the professional and you are the amateur. That is not the way this works. Even the way that we talk about ministry in the life of this church, we talk about it in a way that says, hey, listen, if you're a member of this church, you have a job to do. You don't put money in the plate so that Sean does the ministry. That's not the way it works. You see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. (coughs) 
<clears throat> talking about good gifts that have been given to the church. It says uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So my job and the job of the elders in this church is to equip you, to give you the tools and the instruments that you need so that you can do ministry in the life of this church to one another. A way that that might work out is you might come to me and say, hey, Sean, I'm a little concerned. There's this issue with this person in the church, and I was just wondering if you could talk to them for me. And to that I'll say, probably not. But what I can do is I can sit down with you and we can look at God's word and we can talk about what you can say to them so that you can minister to them because you are fully capable of doing that and that is your job. Uh, It's a lot easier to just have programs. It's a lot easier to have guys who are in charge of things. It's a lot easier to have committees. It's a lot easier to just pay somebody to do it. But that's not the way that God has designed the church. Unfortunately, God has designed the church, for, uh, excuse me, fortunately, God has designed the church to work in this way, where we get dirt under our fingernails. And honestly, if you've lived in this environment, if you breathe in the atmosphere long enough, you know that there's actually nothing like it. it, it, it there's just something about knowing that God has called you to be the one to build up the church that strengthens you and encourages you and empowers you uh, for discipleship and for every good thing that God has called you to. Point number five, restitution. Uh, Look at chapter six. Uh, We're not going to read it, but if you just look at chapter six back in Leviticus, uh, verses one through seven, you can go back and read that in more detail in your quiet times if you like. Uh, These are the laws for restitution offerings. The main thing that we see here is that when our sin affects other people, not just God, it is not merely enough for us to repent to God alone, right? When possible, and it's not always possible, but when possible, we must make restitution to those that we have sinned against, to those that we have done an injustice, right? Uh, And it's not just paying back what you owe them. Verse 5 tells us that you actually have to pay them back Uh, a fifth more than what you have robbed them of. So the summary of the law is this, love God and love your neighbor. But you have to remember that neither one of these stand alone, okay? It's not like love God and forget about your neighbor. It's not love your neighbor and forget about God. The first one, love God, forget about your neighbor, that was the religion of the Pharisees. The second one, love your neighbor but don't love God, that's the, the, the law of, that's the religion of liberalism. We are called to do both. Now, what you, what you find interesting here, or at least I do, is the order that God prescribes here. God does not say, if you have robbed your neighbor, go and offer your sacrifice and then go and pay back your neighbor. He says the opposite. Go and make restitution to your neighbor and then come and offer up your sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that, might, that feels a little backwards to us, right? I mean, We know that God is more important than man and sinning against God is more important. Okay, so wouldn't it make sense then for us to say, okay, I'm going to deal with this thing with God first because that's most important and then I'll come back and I'll deal with this sin issue with my brother or sister. But I think we see a lot of wisdom here on God's part because I think he knows what we would do if we were supposed to do things in that order. 
I think he knows that we would offer up our sacrifice to God, we would feel like everything's okay with God, and then it would be perfectly easy for us to just kind of let our reconciliation with our neighbor fall by the wayside. I mean, think about how many times you've had a personal disagreement or a poor interaction with somebody that you knew you probably just needed to sit down and have a conversation with them and talk about it. And you're like, I'll call them next week. Or we'll sit down and talk about it over coffee next month. And then you, you have the best of intentions. You're going to get back around to it. Or you owe somebody money. And you're going to, when tax return comes, for sure, you're going to have enough extra. You're going to go and pay them back. It's just so easy to let that go. Those conversations are never had. That forgiveness is never offered. The repentance is never given. The money's never paid back. I see a lot of wisdom here on God's part. He goes, no, you go and take care of what you need to take care of with your neighbor and then come back and deal with me. And it keeps that weight on us throughout the process. Jesus says the same thing later in his ministry in Matthew 5, 24. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift on the altar. Love God, love your neighbor, be reconciled to God and be reconciled to your neighbor. Number seven, the shortest of all points I don't have much to say about this. This is the pleasing aroma point. Um, <clears throat> what you see over and over again in these first seven chapters is that when a sacrifice is offered up to the Lord, if it's done properly, it's said to be a pleasing aroma to, to the Lord. And I just want to point out here that sometimes Christians like us who got our theology worked out, you know, we like know that man is sinful, you know, no one is righteous, no, not one. And we're like, yeah, we are terrible, Woohoo! you know, bags of worms, to, to quote the Puritans. Uh, we, we like to act like we can never please God. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. There's a sense in which that's true. In our own power, in our own flesh, according to our own wisdom, trying to conjure up our own righteousness, we can never please God. But I think one of the things that you see here, and in, in one of the principles you can take away from these verses, is that when God's people offer sacrifices of worship to God in the way that he has commanded, it actually does please him. It brings him very much joy. It is a delight. That's what the pleasing aroma is. It's like, you know, Saturday morning, you wake up and you smell bacon and eggs. Man, it just lifts your heart. That's what right worship does for God when we worship him according to his rule. Yeah. And may he be pleased with our worship this morning. The final point the sacrifice, the final sacrifice. So this, I know this has been a little bit of a long sermon, especially after last week where I basically limped off the stage and collapsed in my office. Um, but I want you to try to really pay attention to these words from Exodus 29. This was when God was first giving his people uh, these sacrifices in Exodus 29. This is what he says. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and I will speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. At the end of the day, friends, these sacrifices were given by a God who loves his people who desires to meet with his people, who loves them so much that he wants to communicate with his people, 
and who wants to bless them with the greatest blessing in the universe. He wants to consecrate his people with his glory. And the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to do this now without having to go before a temple, without having to kill an animal, without having to go through the inspection and identification and all that stuff. It is done. It has been accomplished for us. And the same God of the Old Testament is alive and well today. And in the New Testament, we see that he doesn't just desire to have a relationship with Israel. He desires a relationship with all tribes and all tongues and all nations. There is no one who is not a part of this desire that God has in his heart. He loves us and he's drawing us back into relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross. And if you are here this morning and you have not partaken of this sacrifice, if you are not covered by his blood, if your sins have not been atoned for, you need to know that none of these things will happen for you. And the only time that you will meet with God will be when you meet with him as a judge. And the only words that you will hear come out of his mouth will be words of condemnation because of your rebellion. And the thing that you will be consecrated by will not be his glory, but his wrath. But oh friends, the sweet and beautiful news of the gospel is that in order to come face to face with him as a friend and as a father and to hear his words of affirmation and love and to be consecrated in his glory, the only thing that we have to do in order to receive that is receive it and nothing more. So will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Leviticus. We thank you for teaching us eternal and timeless truths. Will you please help us to actually learn them? Will you plant them deep down in our hearts? Will you change us with them? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.